It is Wednesday, March 21st, 2018, and I am covered in dog hair. Welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. We'll go for about 86 minutes or so today. Uh, we'll talk about the latest and greatest in mixed martial arts, probably a little bit outside of that as well. Uh, you want to ask me a question or make a comment or whatever you want to do, you can... Uh, I should have put my chair up a little bit. I don't think I can. Nope. It's as high as I go. Well, what are you going to do about it? F it. Um, so, now that I've started off poorly, best place to get your questions in, of course, is going to be where this window is embedded up here. Yes. Oop, and now our camera's out of focus. There we go. Uh, on MMAfighting.com. And at the last 15 minutes... You can shoot me, or you can shoot me a tweet, but the last 15 minutes, I'll go to them at L Thomas News. You can ask a question there as well using the hashtag chat rappers. On the show today, we'll talk about the boxing versus MMA stuff. I really want to talk about that. Uh, UFC London and whatever else is really on your mind. A um, couple of housekeeping notes. As you can see, I am in my new studio, but I'm still setting everything up. Still trying to get everything adjusted, but quality should be a little bit higher, at least incrementally as uh, I develop this. Number two, if you want a promotional malpractice live chat t-shirt in black, um, they are up. I'll put a link in the description box below, as well as, he's not here with me because he's upstairs right now, um, the Barbas t-shirts are up as well. They say Manos Arriba. Um, so those are up as well. I'll put a link in there if you want to check that out. They're ready to go. And I am ready to go. So let's do this. By the way, I don't know what part of the country you are joining me in, but it's snowing like an mf -er outside. And this show, this podcast, will end about 2.30 my time. My next job starts at 3. Now, it's only two miles from here, but there's six inches of snow on the ground. Now, if you're Canadian, you're like, yeah, big deal. If you're from Minnesota, you're like, yeah, big deal. But I'm not from Canada, and I'm not from Minnesota. And I am wondering if I'm going to make it. I guess we'll see. All right. Let's do this. Okay. Uh, by the way, I'll answer the first question, then I want to get to this thing that I got on my mind because it's just important. Uh, but the first question, ceremonial one, from Matt the Donk, that is his screen name, writes, Top UFC bantamweights, TJ and Cody happened back in November of 2017, right? Cruz hasn't fought in over a year, although he was supposed to, but yes, you're, you're right. And Asun Sal got a much-needed finish four months ago. It's time to make some fights. What matchups do you like the UFC to make at the top of the division? Now, somebody writes, Asensio gets no love. Dude, you're probably next in line for a title shot, but I imagine he'll get someone like Cruz while the winner of uh, Maurice Rivera will, will uh, gets it. Probably so, in part because Dillashaw is still the champion. I think as long as he's the champion, they're probably not going to do a bunch of super solids for Asensio. On top of that, while I agree he is a phenomenal athlete and a phenomenal fighter, he has had a series of not-so-awesome fights, at least in terms of spectator enjoyment, whatever that's worth to, uh, to you as a metric. And so I really wonder if that might hurt his cause a little bit going forward. But be that as it may, also it should be noted, I believe Maurice and Rivera are set to fight soon. Let's pull up these rankings, shall we? UFC rankings. So here's what we have at Bantamweight. As you mentioned, Garbrandt is number one. Dominic Cruz is number two. I suppose they could do that rematch, but a fresher one feels better. Asensal versus Cruz would be kind of interesting. Winner of, hmm, boy, that is a good one. I would say Rivera Morais winner should get a title shot, but then because this is the problem with the rankings, right? Because Cruz is sitting at two, 
and Cruz lost to Garbrandt, but Garbrandt just got finished by Dillashaw. We're living in this space where, how do I explain this exactly? It's the same thing with Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo gets finished two times in a row, but because prior to the Ortega fight, he had beaten Edgar convincingly twice, that he had tenure over that position forever, it appears. And so as a consequence, uh, he got was the number one. Like it, it, Again, what, the, what are the rankings about? The rankings are about establishing a contendership queue. They don't have any meaning otherwise. Otherwise, it's just a subjective sense of, I think this guy's better than that guy. You're not doing that. You're taking accomplishment, both all historical and then more recent, into account to try to establish a hierarchy of contendership. That's the only way in which you can make them make sense. Uh, and so... Aldo, losing twice, all of a sudden becomes the number one contender. It's insane. Here we have it again. Garbrandt, very talented guy. I, I think a rematch with Dillashaw would be very interesting, but he did get finished, and he's sitting at the number one spot. So I would say uh, they could do Asensal Cruz and then Rivera Morais, which would be kind of interesting. Lineker, I think, is sort of floating out there, and Dotson uh, recently picked up that win over Pedro Munoz. Sterling jumping up to eight, Caraway dropping to nine, Pedro at ten. Yeah, that's the way I would go. I would look at it as a Cruz Asuncao thing, although Asuncao won more recently, but Cruz has a bit of a name value and is ranked higher, whatever that's worth. Then, of course, we know Rivera and Rice are fighting. Where are they fighting? I forgot what card that was on. Let me refresh my memory. It's not that good anymore. The one in Atlantic City? No, Utica. So it'll be Rivera versus Marais, Walt Harris versus Daniel Spitz, Sejora Eubanks, Lauren Murphy, Hector Sandoval, Jared Brooks, John Vellante, Sam Alvey, Vince Pinchel, Pichel, excuse me, Gregor Gillespie, Jake Ellenberger, Brian Barbarina. And then I guess maybe Jessica Aguilar versus Jody Esquibel. Not the best card. Um, better or worse than 1990 Steven Seagal, Ronda's WWE moves? I would say significantly worse, although they could be made better if they had the same... You know, Steven Seagal benefited from editing, right? So if she had that, she'd be baller. Wasn't she in one of the Fast and Furious movies doing something, right? I mean, I guess that looked pretty good, right? So, I, I mean, look, man, happiness is so hard to find in this world. It really is. You know, it's just about impossible for most people. I really believe that. I think for most people, you can have like fleeting moments of happiness. But life is basically so difficult that like existential joy if it came that easy there wouldn't be self-help books and gurus and to, to some extent um organized religion i suppose um even then western medicine uh, and the way in which it sort of tries to treat uh, various disorders as a consequence of unhappiness whether it's depression or anxiety or anything it's, it's very very difficult to find happiness in this world if someone is out there trying to find happiness on some level, you have to just be like, okay, I, I really can't hate on it too much, especially if it's over an activity that I have virtually no relationship to. On the other hand, while certainly I would present myself as somebody who is not necessarily very qualified to have really a whole lot of opinions on what makes or doesn't make good professional wrestling. In fact, I'm probably the least qualified person. I can look at this one and just sort of tell it doesn't exactly pass the eye test. And if you haven't seen it, there's a there's a GIF in there in the comments, and it is nubs. Wow, is it nubs? Um, but beyond that, I don't know what to say about it. Well, there's a throw too. <laughs> she just straight up lifts her leg for her. 
I don't know how y'all watch this. I really don't know how y'all watch this stuff. I realize this is a very low level version of it, but I really don't get it. But hey, man, people like what they like. You know, I like dumb stuff too. All right. Um, I don't know that there's a question about this. Okay, before we get into Darren Till, let me get into this because I was I was having a discussion on Twitter yesterday about it, and everyone, well, everyone, but Twitter is one of these places where it doesn't matter. I could have been well wrong about it, but it doesn't matter if you say two plus two is four. Somebody will find an issue with it, um, which is okay. It's just the way the world works, I suppose. Now, again, I'm not saying this is as simple as two plus two equals four, uh, as if to sort of glibly dismiss challenges to the idea that I was presenting. I don't mean that. But what I was just sort of used to, like, the, the, having every idea you present, however palatable, as challenged. Neither here nor there. Here's what I want to discuss very, very quickly, then I'll get back to this if we can, is the debate was centered around this. Why is it all of a sudden, not exactly all of a sudden, but more recently, why has there been a significantly greater interest in these sort of crossover boxing MMA fights? Well, for a couple of reasons. Um, Pacquiao star f uh, faded, and maybe the second biggest star in combat sports was not Pacquiao relative to Mayweather. It was McGregor, and of course, McGregor up for a challenge that most fighters in their primes wouldn't be up for even for the paycheck. And Mayweather is sort of in this unique spot where uh, he can make it look reasonably competitive, but not really, and make a ton of cash, right? So there's all the reasons why that fight happened. But then you get to Anthony Joshua saying things like, you know, I just got to learn submissions and stuff. And I, I certainly believe that Anthony Joshua is a fighter's fighter. Um, I just don't think that these guys know anything about... Um, they don't know anything about MMA. If, if you, if someone were to say to you, yeah, I just got to learn submissions and stuff. This, I, I don't know exactly how to explain it other than like they're treating something like going to a lecture for a couple of times by some famous academic and, you know, listening to it and responding to it and trying to understand it and, and sort of absorbing it as the same as getting a degree in the topic and the, and the larger academic subject in which that person teaches, right? Think about that. Like, I, oh, I went to a couple of lectures, pick somebody you guys might like. I'm guessing Sam Harris. Sam Harris, very, very bright guy, right? Controversial views in some capacities, but bright guy. Um, good podcast too, actually. And uh, so imagine going to a couple of his lectures and then thinking you have a degree in neuroscience, right? It'd be sort of absurd. That's what that statement is like. When someone says, yeah, I'd have to learn the submissions and stuff, bro, that, that will take you years, years, years of study. And not just study, constant study, day, near daily study. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. So these absurd comments that he might think that it's not that hard because he doesn't know, which is fine. It's understandable. Um, and again, I do think he might actually think he can beat these people. So it's not like he's out there trolling, but he could be trolling too, getting his name out there. But here's the crux of the conversation. The crux of the conversation was as follows. I am arguing, I am positing that something is broken inside fight sports when these kinds of fights not only have more appeal, but in the case of Mayweather McGregor, how seemingly aberrant it might have been, uh, they are a symptom of something larger that is broken. That's what that means. Whenever you have an entity that uh, or some kind of ecosystem that operates in a certain way. And then you have this entirely bizarre and, uh, yes, let me get to the meat and potatoes of this conversation. This entirely aberrant experience that happens 
that not only doesn't really match the common way in which this functions, but could potentially imply um, that this is harmful for the long-term sustainability of this thing, this ecosystem. Whenever you get something like that, which I would submit to you, this is what that is. I don't necessarily think if a Joshua John Jones fight would happen that the sky would fall, but I do think that if Japanese MMA teaches us anything, it is that when you begin to substitute um, structure and order and depth and contendership curation for sideshows, that supplants the fandom itself, and then ultimately that itself can't be sustained, and then fandom wanes. Uh, again, Japanese anime is a little bit different, but that's a real big lesson. So that brings us back to this one. So you've got something like that. That tells you that there's something wrong with the system in the ecosystem to produce something like this. So what is it that's broken inside? I think maybe less so in boxing, but certainly in MMA. And it may just be temporary. I don't even know that it's some like unsolvable problem, but it, it seems quite clear to me that there is such a lack of star power that there is such a lack of stars that you're 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 literally witnessing MMA fans looking to nearby combat sports to try to pull those guys in. Now, let's be clear about something: they've always done that to this extent, but never, um, never so cravenly. I don't think, at least not in the modern era. And number two, um, they're trying to fill a gap. Right, the gap is when we have, if we had a nice middle class of pay-per-view draws who could do 500,000, maybe not a million, but we could do that. And then you had an, another class of guys or ladies who could all do a million. I just don't think you'd see as much need for a crossover fight. Now, even when the UFC was doing well, there were attempts, at least suggestions between Roy Jones Jr. and Anderson Silva at having a boxing match and it was poo-pooed and it never happened. It's not like these things never go away or that they would only exist in this kind of environment. But the heightened way in which they exist, I think to me, is absolutely a product of the fact that there is not nearly enough star power in MMA, that that is a clear part of its success and its in, in ability to endure. Yes, all the contenderships, uh, spots all the way down, they have to be filled too, and those guys won't necessarily be stars, and that's okay too. Everyone has a role to play, but that piece at the top is missing. And as a consequence, we're looking to other sports very, very desperately, and including our cousin, to pull them in, even then you know the outcome is, is so absurd. And this is what I mean. I had people saying to me, well, if you go look back over the course of history, these kinds of crossover fights have always happened, which is absolutely true. And in that sense, there might be some kind of continuation here. But that's a product of the fact that, number one, I would imagine that the hardcore fan base is a little less, less receptive to these crossover fights than the casual fan base. In fact, I would humbly submit to you that it is the casual fan base that is really pushing this line, that really wants this to make it happen. If it weren't for their participation, I just don't think that it necessarily would. There'd be some popularity for it, but not a whole lot, number one. Number two, this is not the 1920s. This is not the 1960s or the 40s. This is in the last, since 1993, but even before that. But let's just start there. In the modern age, all on video, you have witnessed this development of fighting standards to make outcomes between crossover sports highly knowable. You didn't have that before. You didn't have that before at all. You didn't have any of that. Now you had it, you had it since 1993. You've got it. You've got it across the world, check. And you've got it all on video. Um, and you've got it incremental too. It didn't just happen overnight. It took year after year after year after year for the development of these best practices. The idea that there's a curiosity 
about what would happen if an MMA fighter fought a boxer. Well, you never know. There's always a puncher's chance. But that's about it, Jack. There's really no other mystery and vice versa. It's possible you could get a Tim Sylvia who's not really paying attention and doing a Ray Mercer bit and he gets slugged out. But we're talking about the elite ones where they don't make those kinds of mistakes. Uh, it's just you know what's going to happen. So what are you missing? What you're missing is the pageantry. And that pageantry comes from the star power. That is what is broken. That is missing today, which is why you see the fan base doing this and which is why these kinds of fights are popular. I don't think this is strictly some kind of historical continuation. I think what this is more of is a symptom of something that's absolutely missing in today's game. So there you go. Give me just a second here. They cowling me. All right. Let's go. All right. Darren Till, UFC Liverpool versus. Oh, by the way, someone always makes this argument. Someone goes, you know what else is fake? Some pro wrestling fan. Every movie and TV show you've ever watched. Complaining that pro wrestling is fake is the equivalent of complaining Black Panther or Star Wars or any other movie or TV shows is fake. Right. Well, they're not trying to look like sports either. Uh, number one. Number two, sure. Lots of things are fiction. If you read at the level of a toddler, there's Harry Potter. If you read at a higher level, there's, I don't know, John Steinbeck or something. And if you read at maybe uh, even higher than that, there could, in my judgment, Sound and the Fury. And even higher than that could be potential Shakespeare plays. Um, it is not that fiction is categorically disqualifying. It is the level of fiction that we are being subjected to. And I would humbly submit that it's, in my judgment, and your mileage will vary, not very good fiction. Uh, okay. Darren Till versus uh, UFC Liverpool versus dot, dot, dot. Hi, Lucas. We all know Darren Till is headlining UFC Liverpool on May 26th. So let's have some questions about this. When this was announced, you saw a report that his opponent would be Jorge Masvidal. You called this the perfect matchmaking. So why is this perfect matchmaking? And why did you think of that opinion? Now, we know we now know that's probably not likely to happen, but here was my thought. Number one, if Darren Till, who assuming would be headlining, coming out as the uh, main event, second in the walkout, were to be coming out, first of all, if you beat Jorge Masvidal, you can call yourself a pretty elite welterweight. I, I think that's a fair statement. Jorge Masvidal is an excellent fighter, and he is nobody to push over, and you, you're not going to push him over. If you beat him, you got to beat him fair and square. Only the very, very, very best beat Jorge Masvidal. He's a legit test in the boxing department. He's a legit test in the kickboxing department, in wrestling and jiu-jitsu. You can beat him. He's not unbeatable, but the very best are the only ones that do it. So to me, I think that beating Donald Cowboy Cerrone as fast as he did is an incredible accomplishment. But this is also the guy that went the distance with Nicholas Dalby. Now, I'm not saying they're the same guy. They're, he's an evolved version, and I suspect he has a continually evolved version from what we saw even in Gdansk. All I'm saying is there are some questions that still remain somewhat unresolved. Beating, uh, especially if it went a long time, beating Jorge Masvidal would go a very long way towards answering some of those questions. Number two, you're talking about a guy like Jorge Masvidal, who is a warhorse and a veteran, does not get intimidated by going to somebody's enemy territory. I don't think that would bother him at all, which then goes back to, 
what of a what of a test it would be. Number three, whatever number we're on at this point, I also don't think that he doesn't mind wearing the black hat. You want him to turn him into a villain? He'll be your villain. He'll play that role. He doesn't mind that at all. He's probably pretty good at it too. Uh, is he a Colby Covington type? I mean, they're buddies, but not exactly. He's got his own style. Point being is, what more could you want out of an opponent? Perfect test. Uh, has no problems traveling to your country in your hometown. Doesn't mind wearing the black hat. Totally experienced, still young, and and not shop worn. It does the fights don't come much better than that. Now they don't have necessarily any kind of personal animosity, so maybe it's missing in that sense. But it's pretty damn good. Now they didn't do it, but that's the way I was thinking. Uh, second option, and no, the one I want to know uh, the most is a fight with Wonder Boy. What do you think of this option? People like this fight, and again, would I complain if they made a Wonder Boy versus Darren Till fight? No, of course not. It would be phenomenal. I'd have no problems with that whatsoever but it's not really my first choice to be quite honest i think uh, I, it would be an interesting stand-up war i would want i want to see that fight but i don't want to see that fight next uh how would it play out i'm not sure i don't think we have enough to say about the striking of darren till he'd probably be pressuring wonder boy pretty hard could he cut off the movement could he find him could he use his good boxing and his reach i don't know it was reported by BJPenn.com that Wonderboy's hands are at 70%, but that he could fight May 26th if offered, and was elaborated on by Ariel that his father is not that interested in fighting till in Liverpool. We cannot write this option off yet, okay? Third option that few people are talking about is the Santiago Ponzinibbio fight. I know there are talks of him fighting a week earlier in the Chile main event, um, but the fight with Till is probably bigger than anything else he could get, and there are other Latin American fighters that could headline Chile. Are there? Who? You could put other Spanish-speaking fighters in there, but uh, who that is uh, worthy of a main event slot? You could say Yoel Romero, but he's got Robert Whitaker coming up. Juliana Pena is out of commission. Let me go through the rankings here and we'll find someone who speaks Spanish who deserves to be in a main event role. Here's on the pound-for-pound pound list. Tony Ferguson, maybe, but he's, of course, got um, Habib coming up, so that, you're not going to do that one. Then let's see. Uh, Henry Cejudo, but I believe he's got... Uh, a fight coming up, right? Or does he? The Henry Cejudo fight. Let's see. Or is that Joseph Benavidez? Maybe he doesn't. Suppose, but then who would he be fighting? You really want a flyweight main event? I mean, I guess you could do that. Um, let's see. Who is he fighting next? Yeah, we don't know yet. Maybe he's still recovering. So maybe that's one, but who would he fight? I guess there's a couple of options you could do. Maybe. I'm not sure. Um, let's see, Brendan Moreno, I suppose you could do, but I think he's got another fight scheduled as well. Yes, he does. He's on UFC 223. If you want to go to a higher weight class, just sort of jumping around here at light heavyweight, there's nobody at middleweight. You could do Kelvin Gastelum, I suppose, right? But I believe he has a fight coming up against Jacare. So you can't do that one. You can just sort of see there's not a lot of great options. Santiago Ponzinibbio is not merely a Spanish speaker, but he's a South American. Now, what's interesting is that, um, well, I was, I would, my understanding is that Peruvians and Chileans have a bigger rivalry, but you know he's not necessarily Chilean, but there would probably be a fair amount of Argentines who travel um, to go to go see him compete. Um, he's the best choice, I think, given their schedule. I think what you're talking about is, wouldn't it be better to have an event set up where you know UFC Liverpool is going to be big, you've got one half the main event, you can't really dick up the other half. You shouldn't. And you got a guy like Ponzinibbio who would make a great choice for a whole lot of reasons. I would agree. But then when that gets back to this point about the UFC having their 
event management teams get out in front of their fight booking staff and then they're always having to play catch up and it's not it's not always it doesn't always work so there's that um so yeah so I, I just don't think that would necessarily be the best option you could do it but then it would leave you in a bit of a lurch for that and lastly we have the option of covington may have already turned it down usman gunny and leon edwards personally i do not want to see any of these options but i do not think excuse me but i do not want to see till get smothered or def or defending takedowns yet for this fight, I would like to see him versus a striker. What do you think of these options? No, I like to see, I want to see the, um, so I'd be okay with the Leon Edwards fight. I think I'd prefer the Gunny Nelson fight, to be honest. Pers this is me personally speaking, because Gunny Nelson has the ability to test him on the feet and on the ground. But I, I would caution you against writing off that Usman fight. Now look, here's the truth to Conor McGregor. He was brought along in such a way where that every time you saw him, he got better and better and better, and the competition got slowly better. But they gave him just the right competition at just the right time where they couldn't – they could challenge him, but they couldn't necessarily overblow his weaknesses at the time, or his, I should say his perceived weaknesses. Um, and so by the time he kept going, and by the time he got good, uh, – most of those problems were ironed out. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's got the world's best wrestling today, but I don't think it's the same liability that it once was. So you have to be of two minds here about Darren Till, right? On the one hand, you can do that with him, in which case you can put up the striking contest. That's one thing you can do. You can hear Barbas barking. On the other hand, the other thing you can do, Jesus Christ, my family is just making all this noise out there and it's driving me crazy. They get explicit instructions not to do it, and they just do it. In any case, the other one you can do is um, the Usman fight, and here's why. I actually like the Usman fight because it's the same argument you can use for anybody who's good. Now, I agree that wouldn't be my first choice, but I don't know it would be so far behind my last choice either uh, because either Till can wrestle or he can't. Either he can wrestle or he can't. If he really is good enough to beat Darren, excuse me, to beat Kamaru Usman, and you believe that, and I'm not inclined to challenge it. I don't really know how good he is. I don't really know how I, I look. I know he's very, very good, and I know Kamaru Usman's very, very good. But who's really better? I don't know. I would love to see it. I would love to see it because it would answer a lot of questions. Now, the natural response to that would be, well, you've got one fighter picking off the other at a contendership level. That's not good, which I would agree with. It's not ideal. I will never argue it's ideal. However, what I would submit to you is neither guy's in the top five at this point. That's something to consider. If you're really worried about a guy getting wrestled to death, I don't know why you wouldn't pick the Jorge Masvidal one. He can wrestle, but he's happy to strike. Kamar Usman will strike a little bit, I suppose, depending on, on, on what his game plan is. But I think you all know it, the wrestling would be a pretty heavy portion of his game, and that's okay too. All I'm saying is you have to decide what kind of – it's not about what's the right fight for UFC Liverpool exactly, although that is an important question. It's how that question fits into the broader picture of Darren Till. Do you have enough belief in Darren Till to treat him as a guy who deserves tough challenges, but incrementally tough challenges, because you know if you give this guy enough time, by the time that the real danger starts happening, um, he's going to be ready to go. He's going to have all those things locked down. Or is this a guy that you're unsure about, but you believe has a potential high upside, and you want to see what he can do? Well, then you feed him Kamaru Usman. 
because I see a lot of people being like, oh, I, I really like this guy. I believe he's the best, but I don't want him to fight Kamar Usman. Well, if you believe he's the best, what are you worried about? If he's the best, he'll beat them. Uh, okay, well, it wouldn't be the most exciting fight. I really think Darren Till will find a way to deliver an exciting fight. I really do. If you think he's the best. If you think he's the best. I don't know if he's the best. I'm willing to believe it with some additional evidence. Uh, and I'm also willing to say maybe the Kamar Usman fight doesn't go first. But you have to figure out what your belief system is here. If everyone is saying to me, oh, man, Darren Till, he's the next big thing. Why are you worried about Kamar Usman then? Uh, hey, if anybody else has some questions about UFC Liverpool, please post them below this. Let's make one thread about them. All right. Look, your thoughts on the UFC Liverpool promo video. thought it was awesome. I thought it was fantastic. I can't wait for UFC Liverpool. I can't do that Scouse accent where they, they say the heavy T's and then the, the huh. You know, the, I don't know. How, I can't do it, obviously. But I find them, you know, unique and interesting and rowdy in a good way, although I'm sure there's a bad way about it too. But, um, yeah, they're great fight fans. Darren Till is a, the genuine article. I believe the UFC should embrace regionalism more when it can. Uh, and look, the matchmaking here is a tough choice because you don't want to burn somebody. But the last thing to sort of consider here is what if he does lose to Usman? Will this kill his star potential? Maybe. I doubt it, though. I doubt it. I think, you know, he's 26 years old or so. He's, he'll be okay. And you listen to him talking. He does not worry about any of these guys. Maybe we maybe we listen to Darren. What is this? They're hitting me up here. And then Danny says Santiago is the guy for Chile. Yeah, I don't know who else you put in there. I really don't. All right. Frank Shamrock. Hi, Luke. How are you? I'm excellent. This might be a random enough question, but with the people discussing this year's Hall of Fame inductees, I've seen it come up on a few sites. In your own words, could you explain the beef between Frank Shamrock and Dana White? And why he is shunned by the UFC once Dana leaves. Do you think Frank should be inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame? Um, okay. So, I mean, this sort of goes back to um, business practices that they wanted him to adhere to and he wouldn't. Um, he, uh, you know, how Randy Couture was one of the first guys who wanted to control his own likeness rights and his own. Um, his own ability to call his own shots with not matchmaking exactly, but the, the contours of his career and fight for multiple organizations. And he was like that. And I think the UFC considered him disloyal. Um, and he considered them uh, Odins, uh, burdensome and onerous to, to, to deal with. And um, in terms of like the Hall of Fame, my understanding is they would like to actually induct him. And I think they're probably considering it. There's just a few things. Number one, of course, would Dana sign off on it? I don't know. Number two, if they gave it to him, would he even show up? Which is not a reason to not induct him, but wouldn't you rather have it with him there, right? Wouldn't it make more sense to do that? Would he do that? There's a lot of really complicated questions here, but essentially, um, there's a good book about this too. Um, God, what was the name of it? I've forgotten now. It's been so long since I read it. Uh you know what? Let me make a note about that. What is the name of that book that I read that really laid all this out? And it's not his own biography. Let me make a note. 
Yeah, a lot of this comes down to which contracts they sign for how many fights, for what kind of money, for what kind of distribution, what responsibilities these guys have to the brand, or what they perceive they have to the brand, what the brand perceives they owe them. And uh, Frank Shamrock was just his own guy and just marched to the beat of his own drum. And back then, that came with some pretty significant costs in terms of your exposure and your ability to um, make a name for yourself. Uh, Vitaly Minikov, any idea what is next for him? People asked this last week. I do not know. Best person to ask about that. There's got to be some Russian reporter. Um, Grabaka Hitman might know better than me. He keeps up with the esoterica of Russian MMA. Uh, I do not know. I do not know. Who do you think is next for Nganu? He says he wants Brock, and I would love to see it, but I worry about the takedown defense. God, I could not care less. I mean, what is so bizarre and interesting to me is that I really would love to see Brock back in the UFC, and for some reason, I couldn't care less about seeing that fight. I just don't care at all. And it's sort of weird that it's like everybody's calling. I mean, I guess it's not weird. I guess it's understandable, but it's sort of lame that I think everyone is calling him out. I get it. They think he's probably, whether they're right or they're wrong, they think he's easy pickings. They know it'd be big money. Uh, for Nganu, I think he probably believes meritocratically he could change some opinions about his takedown defense. So his situation is a little bit different. But, you know, I don't know. It's just like, all right, see him, punk. <laughs> I'll see you on the, you know, I'll see you in front of the town square at noon. Be there or be chicken. It's like, it's like you guys are calling him out, you know, just please stop. Please stop. And Brock Lesnar is is certainly a bit of a different animal, but it's the same kind of vibe where it's like, you know, why like why is Darren Till having to potentially face Kamaru Usman? Now he may not, but let's say he does. Why is it? It's because there's so many donks above them who are just holding position and they don't want to take risks. And everyone can be like, yeah, I understand that, and I do understand that. However, there should be some kind of mechanism to overcome that because I'm sorry, pardon me. That shit is lame. It's lame. It's lame. You cannot possibly be some kind of a fight fan and be like, yeah, I get it. These guys don't want to fight each other. Great. How is that great for you? It's not great for you. It's great for them. Uh, it's not great for you. And I have a degree of forgiveness and I have a degree of patience. And I certainly hope that I have a degree of understanding. You know, these guys wanting to sit out a little bit longer than normal is okay. But to me, sitting out three or four potential fight cycles you know, every three months or so, it's tiresome, man. Real tiresome for me. And, uh, and that's not exactly what Nganu was doing here. I understand that. But uh, I'm talking more about what's happening at welterweight. But the point being is all these guys are trying to pick exactly the right fight. Again, I, I will understand it to some extent. But after that, if it doesn't really work out, let's see what happens with Francis here. Just please fight. Please fight somebody who's in a relatively close position to you because that's what makes it awesome for everybody else. And I realize that how do you reconcile everyone's interests with the fighters' interests when in some cases they don't overlap very much? It's not easy, but we need some kind of mechanism. Again, we need some kind of CBA where we can say, uh, sure, you can deny a couple fights, but after that, it can either affect your purse or it can affect what kind of card you go on or it has some kind or the earlier you accept, the more you're liable to get a bonus or I don't know, some kind of mechanism to encourage this to happen or be better in the rankings about really reshuffling order commensurate with uh, historical achievement and then recent achievement such that it accurately reflects a real contendership queue so that if you get finished in a championship fight, you're not the number one effing contender. That's a huge, huge problem, a huge problem. Uh, so would he, if, in terms of the, the fight itself, as uninteresting to me as that would be, 
Um, I think Francis. Let's see what he's been working on. The Francis that showed up against Stipe would have some problems. I'll put it to you that way. Um, that one would have some problems. But he appears to be working on his game. He seems to think that he is turning a corner. He's young enough, at least in terms of his technical development, where big gains are still possible. Let's see. Let us see what he can do. My phone is about to die. I'll reach my computer. All right. And by the way, if it's not going to be that, no one is, no one wants this one as much as I do, but I kind of feel like uh, I'd like to see Nganu versus the winner of Derek Lewis versus Alexander Volkov. I would live with just fine. Don't get me wrong. I would live with just fine Francis Nganu versus Derek Lewis. I'd be okay with that. I really would. But if they wanted to mix it up a little bit and have Lewis versus Volkov and then give that guy to Francis, I'd be okay with that too. I'd be really okay with that too. Yeah, look at the rankings now. Number one, Francis. He just he just lost a dom pretty one-sided fight to Stipe, but apparently he's the number one contender. Oh, because he beat Overeem. Okay. Uh, that's fine having him ranked above him, but at number one and number two, it's a little weird. Curtis Blades at four, Lewis at five, Hunt tied at five, and then Verdum at three. Below that, seven, Volkov, eight, Tybora, nine, Arlovsky, ten, Olenek. Yeah, I just don't understand the rankings anymore because they don't make sense. Uh, let's see. Oh, someone says, I guess I'm the only one in the world, but I'm sick of the Brock callouts. Man, you are not the only one. It was kind of interesting when John Jones did it. I was like, all right. Especially if they could have made it happen relatively quickly, which I guess they wouldn't have been able to, but let's sort of say that it, it was possible. I'd have been like, eh, all right. You know, you guys will remember, man, he beat Ryan Bader. Or no, he beat, uh, God, what was it? He beat Ryan Bader and then the Shogun fight happened right after that. John Jones did. Or was it, did he beat John Jones in the, uh, yeah, I think that's what it was. He beat Bader and then like seven weeks later, he went there and just snuffed out Shogun. And it was like super back to back. Yeah, here we go. He beat Ryan Bader in February 5th, two months later, March 19th, a little over two months. Oh, excuse me, what am I saying? Six weeks, not even two months. Um, about six weeks later, he then went and snuffed out Mauricio in under three rounds. And then, of course, then they had another fight in September, and then he beat uh, Quentin Jackson and all that stuff. I guess he fought Rashad much later. Jesus, my memory is fading. But yeah, quick. They could have done that, would have made sense. But, you know, these lengthy call-outs, and I'm going to sit around and wait for Brock Lesnar. I'm not saying that's what he's doing, but if it is, come on, y'all, please. Uh, Gaethje versus Poirier. I feel like with all these great fights coming up, people are forgetting about a big one. Justin, the god of violence, Gaethje, is fighting Dustin Poirier at UFC Glendale. So some questions. Why do you think it seems like this fight is flying under the radar? Well, because a really big one is coming up between Habib and Tony that is just maybe as good as MMA gets, number one. Number two, uh, there's another title fight below that, which is also an important rematch. Uh, it's the biggest card that's going to happen in a while. Major stakes. Conor McGregor's involved. And the Conor McGregor halo is both a halo and a black hole where it shines this light over everything under it, and then it sort of sucks in 
sucks out the oxygen in the room from everything else outside of the halo a little bit. Um, but I agree. It's, I mean, I cannot wait. I cannot wait for that fight. The fight between Poirier and Gaethje is going to be absolutely phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's going to be epic beyond description. So there's that. Um, and by the way, they haven't really started promoting it yet, right? All the promotional assets you see from the UFC out today, and when I say today, I don't mean like they came out today, but if you just looked around today, they're promoting UFC 223, which I think is the smart play. Really go all in on that. Let's just see what kind of buy rate that could do. Um, how do you think this fight will play out? Man. Well, here's the question for you. It's the same question you have to ask yourself at virtually every single Justin Gaethje fight. Number one, who will break and suffer first? Will it be a function of Gaethje's leg kicks and absolutely insane forward pressure, uppercuts, uh, overhands, really just driving into Poirier that will do the trick, plus his takedown defense and stopping the takedown? Or will Poirier be able to, to some extent, stick and move? Will he be able to brawl with Justin Gaethje? I, I tend to think no one can brawl with Justin Gaethje, but there's one caveat. And that's something you have to ask yourself. Did Eddie Alvarez break the seal, right? Was it such a case that, you know, he had never been stopped before? He never lost before, of course, Justin Gaethje. But was it such a case where not only did he lose that fight to Eddie Alvarez, but now he has sort of crossed this threshold of taking damage where there's no going back? Is that what we're looking at here? Is that the scenario? And there's really no way to know until we get in there. Here's my sense. My sense is that if the Justin Gaethje that shows up against Michael Johnson and Eddie Alvarez, even though he lost to Eddie Alvarez, shows up against Dustin Poirier, I probably like Justin's chances. But a couple things in Poirier's defense. Number one, as you saw against Pettis, he is surprisingly well-rounded. People seem to always forget this. Old boy can fight everywhere. Very good at it. Very offensively minded, too. Number two, I do think he tends to fight emotionally, which can get him into a bit of problems. However... He can, when he wants to, also stick and move. He is pretty good at it. He does have a good jab. He does have a good reach. Um, he can fight at kicking range. So that's something to look for as well. And then so the third X factor is how much damage can Justin Gaethje take? It's not a question of will he take damage. His style is predicated on it. It's predicated on it. So at some point, he won't be able to take it like he used to. Is that this fight? Again, that's what makes the fight intriguing. Nobody knows. Everyone can say they know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Maybe even Justin himself doesn't know. The best part about Justin is, even if he doesn't know, I don't think he cares. Or if he does know, I don't think he cares. I don't think he cares at all. I think he just wants to give a good fight. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. That's why we That's why we really love his fights. That's why we have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And in an era when everyone else wants to squat on rankings, here's Justin Gaethje out here just fighting murderers. Uh, any X factor from either fighter you think will play a big part? The question is, for Gaethje, has he taken too much damage? That's the big one. And for Poirier, can he avoid... I think on some level, you just have to brawl with Justin Gaethje a little bit. It's just not possible to stick and move and stick and move, especially because he denies you the takedown so effortlessly. So the question is, not can he avoid brawling with Justin Gaethje. To me, the question is, can he avoid brawling with Justin Gaethje too early? Can he go around sticking and moving? Can he go around and a half sticking and moving? And then when he's really set it up and then disrupted the rhythm or 
the opposite sort of indicated to Gaethje that there is a rhythm, then change it up, right? Can you do all that? I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, it's gonna that's to me a big X factor. Prediction on who will win? I'm going to lean Gaethje, but man, Poirier is something special. And then general thoughts: How can you not love it? What is there not to love about that? Another showcase of how incredible the lightweight division is. You're going to have two guys fighting. What is that uh, Glendale card? Is it like right after? Right? Is it right after UFC 223? Poirier versus Gaethje. I got three monitors up today. Just out here, monitor screens. Like, um, who was it? Like, it was Paul Wall and Chameleon Air said, TV screens falling out the sky like rain. Uh, all right. This is going to be on April 14th. So it's like the week after. It's like the week after. So here's a testament to the to the greatness of the lightweight division. The guy who is the ostensible king, although in absentia, won't even be competing. And you've got four, uh, two pairs, but four guys below him on two separate weekends who are going to headline. And both of those could potentially be candidates for fight of the year. Like lightweight is such an amazing division. And these four guys are a, among many others, are a great testament to that fact. Uh, okay, I'll make this brief since I don't want to spam everybody. Uh, hey, Luke, no question here. Just congrats. The t-shirt designs are actually pretty awesome. Um, uh, TRT Turtles was great. I hope they help support your future content. Thanks, guys. And again, if you want a live chat shirt or a Barbish shirt, link below. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, Rockhold's chances against Gustafson. Now, this person wrote this in quotations. Why is that? Hi, Luke. How do you rate Rockhold's chances against Gust? Not great, to be honest. The Mauler seems like a pretty rough stylistic matchup for Rockhold, especially coming off of being knocked out or having his bell rung pretty bad so much recently. I would agree. Gustafson has superior striking to Rockhold. Um, I'll take that as a given. I, I think that's a little bit debatable, but okay. Especially in boxing range. That's probably true. Yeah, I would okay. I would agree with that. Where Luke has struggled, yes, I would agree with that. Gus is also taller than Rockhold and manages range quite effectively. A little bit. I think his effectiveness of range management is good. Don't misunderstand me. It's good. I don't think it's great. That can be played with a little bit. He has also shown a very strong chin. I would agree. And he is a really difficult guy to take down. I would agree. Given Rockhold's striking disadvantage and the difficulty he will have in getting Gus to the ground, how do you see this fight playing out? Well, your setup is pretty good. I don't have a whole lot to disagree with. I would say at kicking range, Gustafson does not have the advantage. I would give that to Luke Rockhold. I do have respect for the dynamism of his kicking game. And I know nobody wants to believe it because, you know, for some reason, Rockhold rubs some people the wrong way. And I get it. I get it. He's a little bit surly during fight week, but... I think media has a different perspective on that because so many guys we deal with on Fight Week are surly that we just kind of like, eh, whatever. Because, um, you know, you interview a guy cutting weight and they, you know, they're just different. You catch them in like training on a normal weekend, they're they're fine. Um, whatever. In any case. Um, so, in terms of the fight itself, yeah, I would agree. Rockhold's not much of a wrestler in terms of offensive. Not saying he can't, but he just never chooses to. Um, so that's probably out. And even if he was, I would agree Gustafson has a long frame that he uses really well in terms of just driving his hips down, getting his legs behind him. He's got a good sprawl. He's got good underhooks. 
Um, he does sit on his jab and he moves a little bit. His footwork in terms of his his offensive footwork behind his jab is great. His defensive footwork against pressure is where I, he gets a little dicey for me. So that's when I say like, is his is his range management good? I think when he's doing the pressuring, it's excellent. I think when he's getting pressured, it's adequate. And there's a big difference there. However, that would not be unique to Gustafson. That would be true of many MMA fighters. I think he's actually quite common, even at the elite level, in terms of that. So overall, very, very good at that. Um, but because it's much better offensive than his defensive, there's not a lot of guys you can point to. Like Lomachenko, for example, I realize he's a boxer. It's a different story. But if you ask me, like, is there much of a gap between his offensive and defensive footwork? The answer is not merely no. The answer is that the interplay between them is so fluid, you can't tell which one is which sometimes, right? It's a shocking level of integration. Uh, most MMA fighters have like a switch they have to flick. It's like, okay, I'm going to be on this mode now. Oh, now I'm on the back foot. Now I'm on this mode. They don't have exactly this ability to just weave in and out um, like somebody like Lomachenko. And I realize I'm holding them to an absurd standard. But if that's the standard that we know to exist in the real world, we have to measure them against that again in some capacity. But the question is, with a pressuring Alexander Gustafson, would Luke Rockhold really be able to keep that at kicking range? And for that, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I would favor Gustafson pretty pretty cleanly in that one. I, I have a great respect for his game overall. And uh, and while I, while I do think that Rockhold deserves a chance to be taken seriously as a contender potentially at 205 and what a lesser weight cut might mean for him, Gustafson is about as proven a commodity at 205 as you're going to get. They don't come much more proven than that. Maybe he can't beat John Jones. Maybe he can. And maybe he can't beat DC, although it's possible. But he can beat just about everybody else. And I, I, I would probably lump Luke Rockhold in that. But wouldn't be the worst fight in the world to watch. Uh, good question here. Kyle Snyder in MMA. Luke, what are your thoughts on this? He is being called the greatest college wrestler in history. Well, that's a little dubious. Um, it's a hard thing to call him, but okay. And seeing him lock up and get the better of competitors, 60 pounds his size, bigger than him anyway, twice, is very impressive. I know he has expressed an interest, but feel like he couldn't reach his full potential unless he dedicated himself full time. I've read he would like to continue his amateur wrestling career while pursuing a UFC career. Though it has been many months since he expressed interest. He's, he is an unusually gifted athlete in terms of strength, determination, agility, not to mention wrestling IQ. Thanks. Yeah, man. Did you guys see him against Adam Kuhn in the, um, in the finals? <laughs> Adam Kuhn. It, I mean, everyone jokes about Habib wrestling a bear. Yo, this dude looked like he was wrestling a bear. They just been shaved. I was like, is that the last white rhino that everyone's talking about who died? Did Kyle Snyder kill him? Because Adam Kuhn was enormous, enormous out there on that mat. Every part of 280 and not a whole lot of fat, to be honest. Man, he was huge. And Kyle Snyder, who was not some kind of small fry, was just dwarfed out there and then timed this underhook throw by to get to his hips. It was like the most sublime timing you could imagine. It was it was exquisite, and it was patient, and he scores late in matches all the time. He's really willing to wait and bleed the clock to get what he wants. He's kind of incredible in that regard. Um, I think he'd be tremendous. Now, I don't know if he'd be a heavyweight or a light heavyweight, depending on how big he would be at the time and how he wants to or not cut weight. I don't know how that would work. Maybe he would just stay at heavyweight because he likes like a Cormier bit to just overwhelm these donkeys with their his own athleticism. Maybe that would be it, but 
I think he would do really well. I think he's got a, as you mentioned, it's not just that he's physical and young and hungry, which is all really important, or that he wrestles well, also important, is that he wrestles well because he's got an extraordinary wrestling IQ. He just has such great command of the sport, command of the strategy at the right time in a match, and and he doesn't break at all. Like 30 seconds left in the match, down two. You know, you got to get a point and a push out, you know, you got to, or a, or a takedown and a push out. You got to do something, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and he just finds a way to do it. I swear to God, my family, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to, I'm going to murder them. They're doing everything in their power to effing interrupt this thing. I could, I, I swear to God, I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to, in any case, neither here nor there. Um, okay. Yeah. But he got the same advice that Jordan Burroughs got from Daniel Cormier, which was finish your wrestling career when it's left over, go do it. Kind of like what he did. Now, he's already won one Olympic medal, so he could potentially win another one, what, by 2020? So that would put him at, what, 24-ish, which would still put him very young in the game, unless he wanted to keep going. And then he can get a third one if he wanted to, if he was that up good to him. He would still be 28. So he still has some potential left in terms of, uh, what might happen, but it just won't happen immediately. Now, greatest collegiate wrestler, let's sort of talk about that for just a second because he lost in college. And like, for example, Kale Sanderson never did. Um, three-time champion, Kyle Dake won in four and in four different weight classes. So what does it mean to be the best collegiate wrestler? Well, those guys also didn't win world and Olympic titles while, and then these you know incredible tournaments of significance while being there uh, in college, they whatever they, Kale Sanderson went on to do or not do, they did after the fact. He's able to do it at the same time. So the question is, what does that mean? Kale Sanderson went undefeated. Um, Dan Gable lost once, but then didn't have a point scored on him at the what was it? What games were those? Um, part of me wants to say Munich, but that seems like I'm dating him a little bit. What games were those? Yeah, it was Munich. 1972, uh, and then Sofia, and then the Pan American Games in Cali, Colombia. Um, so it's it's hard to say. Certainly, he's in the running, right? I mean, you're talking about the Mount Rushmore of dudes who of wrestling accomplishments up there. It's just it depends what you mean exactly by that. Um, should the UFC provide more incentives for active fighters? If so, what's stopping them? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Being a champion is so valuable to fighters that a lot of contenders become less active when they reach the top five or top ten. At that point, they often fight less often in order to cherry-pick fighters or wait for the right opportunity to fight. This makes it harder to establish who is the number one contender at any given time since top contenders fight less often, and so there is less recent data. Huh. Correct. What should the UFC do about this, if anything? I think they, I think changing the way they do rankings would go a long way. They need to inculcate into whoever does these rankings that the way to do this is you need to think about who is most deserving of a title shot. And the dude who just got smoked, probably not that guy. The dude who got smoked before him, probably not that guy. That doesn't mean we think that this person is better than them in some kind of grander existential sense. It means we're trying to get a lineup 
to give that guy somebody to fight or that when that person becomes champion, then the rest of the line. I think if you just do that over again, you'll get less squatting and less weird matchmaking. But now there are prisoners to it. You know, what's weird about this is um, I've talked about in this chat a lot about how the UFC ran towards regulation and that might have been, frankly, even essential for the sport in its nascent stages to save it. But now it is pretty clearly like a bad idea or at least carries pretty significant risk in terms of not being to being able to properly iterate the rule set when there's a demand for it. Uh, the rankings are one thing they control. It's one of the few things they control. It is one of the few things that they can fix and address and simplify. Uh, and they haven't. Kind of weird. All right. People keep asking about this. I don't know what you want me to tell you. Uh, Maribek Tysimov, what do you make of his visa issues? Seems fucked up. Do you think he will get his wish to fight in Rio on May 12th? And who would you like to see him fight? I hope the Brazilian government treats him in a way that is uh, the way he deserves to be treated. I don't know if the U.S. government is or isn't. Probably are not. But what can you do? Another factor to consider is that he is Muslim and Ramadan starts on May 15th. Yeah, man. I, I, I had him on my show. I think very highly of his abilities. I don't know what to make of his visa issues. They see, He swears he has no idea what it's about. In fact, he doesn't even bring up the fact that he's Muslim or Russian or Chechen as a reason. He just sort of throws his hands in the air and says he doesn't really know. Uh, now, maybe he secretly thinks it's something else. Maybe there's another issue he's not telling us about. But if we take him at his word, this seems like an awful miscarriage of justice. But I don't really know what's happening, man. I don't know what the government's doing. But they've been doing this for a while. They, remember, I told you guys before, they did it to Frodo Hospolayev in Bellator. It was one of the weirdest absences ever. That dude was amazing, and then he just disappeared. Well, not from the face of the earth, but from Bellator. Patty Pimblett, what did you make of his interview in the MMA Hour? I have not watched it. Uh, Ariel asked him about the UFC Liverpool event, and he was very dismissive, saying it was Darren's event, and he wasn't going to be on anyone's undercard. Do you think he's missing a huge opportunity here? Do you think he's lacking the confidence to compete in the UFC, or could he be holding out for financial reasons? Uh, he does not strike me as a gentleman who is lacking in confidence. He strikes me as a guy who's got plenty of it. And could he be holding out for financial reasons? Maybe. Probably. Could be some other factors involved in terms of his interest and how he thinks he'll be treated. Um, look, man, when you're young, decision... When you're Jesus, when you're young, what am I saying? Decision-making is hard. Decision-making is hard in anything in life. It's really, really difficult. There are costs associated with it both financial and others. Um, he could be over, he could be miscalculating an easy path for growth. Uh, or, you know, he's holding out because he's seen a lot of people who have come, like Hector Lombards and Eddie Alvarez's, who have gotten big paydays as a consequence of being somebody special in a small organization. Now, is Cage Warriors that relative to what Lombard was in Bellator or relative to what Alvarez was in Bellator? or Gaethje was in World Series of Fighting? I would submit to you probably not, at least not on this side of the pond. Now, maybe in Europe it's a different thing. I can't speak for them. So to me, he's probably being a little aggressive in his stiff arm of the UFC, but maybe he's got a trick planned up his sleeve too. These fighters are, you know, they're, they can be crazy and they can be clever, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Verdum, Fabrice Verdum, kind of a dick, question mark, supreme asshole, question mark, somewhere in between, question mark. You know, I don't think he's any of those things. 
but I don't understand. And it, people were like, <laughs> these idiots. Oh, God. These people were like, the, <laughs> apparently uh, condemning Ramzan Kadyrov, who's like, literally, you can't even do business with the guy in the United States because the government just finds him such to be, to be a reprehensible toad of the highest order. I mean, a truly odious creature here. Uh, you know, and literally is being accused of human rights abuses on an, uh, you know, unfathomable level. And I had, I spoke out against them and there were people who were like, I can't stand. <laughs> I mean, this is the best. I can't stand all these SJW rants. It's like, oh my God. Oh my God. It's like, you are definitely one of the people that uh, Cambridge Analytica got their data from because number one, you clearly get your news and only from Facebook, right? And number two, it's a lock that you played a lot of Farmville, right? I mean, all of these ASJ, yeah, apparently thinking that the uh, systemic attempted extermination of a uh, aggrieved minority now constitutes uh, being an SJW. Oh, my God. In any case, I don't think he's a dick and I don't think he's an asshole. I think he thinks what he's doing is no big deal. But what I don't get is uh, the support for the Kadyrov. I mean, I missed this financial support, in which case I don't know how that's legal, but whatever. Uh, neither here nor there. It's more like a sort of an, uh, an unethical thing. And I just don't understand why a guy who is seemingly so wonderful and so friendly would do something so unjustifiable. I, 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 just, I just don't get it. I think the people who like accuse other people of being SJWs go back. What was uh, that event? Like you almost, you'll occasionally see like an academic use that term on Twitter merely for like brevity's sake. But if you're ever in a conversation with somebody and they use that like abbreviation or acronym, I'm not sure. I don't think it's an acronym since we wouldn't use the word, but that abbreviation and they're using it unironically, you can disqualify them from the rest of the conversation. Uh, who, what, which one was it? Hang on. There is a famous Q&A. Hold on. It's the one from uh, the Jones and um, Teixeira fight in Baltimore. Which one was that? UFC 172. So Chuck Liddell is doing this, uh, this Q&A with the fans. And this dude gets up there, and I think I talked about this before. He goes, what you say there, Chuck? That's how he starts it. Just some dude from Dundalk, Maryland, right? Look up Dundalk, Maryland. You'll know what I'm talking about. What you say there, Chuck? He's got like old bay all over his fingernails. You know, probably got he's probably got you know one of these guys who was like, I only I only eat the mustard out of crabs, right? Maryland flag hat or something. What you say there, Chuck? Uh, tired all these fighters out here whining and crying every time. I, I'm talking about fighter pay. You know, like just somebody who can't grasp that somebody extraordinarily talented who brings an extreme amount of revenue to somebody else would be entitled to pay greater than his own. But, okay. Uh, whenever I see someone who's like, this this SJW, it's, it, is, it is inevitably a non-reader pimple popper who played a lot of Farmville whose data got stolen by Cambridge Analytica. That's, that is the target audience for that. All right. Uh, April's most violent. Hi, Luke. With all the fights happening in April, which one would you say is guaranteed the most violent? Here's a list of some of the best for April. Can you go through and say what you think of each fight and pick a winner for most violent? So you have Gaethje Poirier, 
Marvin Adesanya. Adesanya is too much of a technician, although that ending could be brutal. Condit Brown, oof. Abdul Razak Al Hassan uh, versus Muslim Salikov. Ferguson Habib, Rose Yoana, Felder Al, Cater Moicano, Kiesa Pettis, Zabit Bakniak, Barboza versus Lee, and Frankie versus Cub 2. I would go with Gaethje versus Poirier and Barbosa versus Lee as number two. After that, man, it's tough to know. Maybe Kiesa Pettis, maybe Brown Condit. Man, there's some good fights. Man, I cannot wait for April. Jesus. All right. Edgar. Frankie Edgar has booked a return fight in Jersey just seven weeks after he was knocked out. What do you think of this? Yeah, I think I had the same opinion that everybody else did. I was like, I don't know about that one. I don't know about that one at all. Um, I don't know. These guys, as I mentioned before, sometimes they're crazy, sometimes they're clever, and knowing the difference is not easy. It really is not very easy at all. Um, man, um, I, I'm troubled by it like you guys are too. On the one hand, I can understand why he wants to get back in there uh, so quickly in Atlantic City, no less, right? Jersey. On the other hand, just, I mean, for the first time you got stopped, you're closer to 40 than you are 30. You're not dropping down away class. You're staying there. Um, you just got the most devastating finish and loss of your career. Um, you've taken a lot of damage over the course of your career. I, I don't like it. I don't like it. Now, here's the interesting part about that. The New Jersey Athletic Commission is putatively one of the better commissions when it comes to pre-fight screening. Remember? Uh, who was it? Back in the day, Tiago Alves was supposed to fight John Fitch way back in the day. And I believe it was the Jersey Commission that stopped it for some abnormal finding in a pre-medical, pre-fight uh, medical screening. So, and by the way, when they've had weird, uh, when they've had weird decisions by judges, yo, New Jersey will bring them into the office and fire them. Like, I don't know that they're the best commission. They've got their own problems. Larry Hazard has been um, resistant to incorporating some of the newer ideas, but they've had instant replay before most other states. They may have even been the first. I'm not sure. But in any case, so in some ways they're progressive, in some ways they're not. But they're, they typically have a good reputation for pre-fight medical screening. We're going to put that to the test. We're going to put that to the test. We shall see. I guess if he passes it, what are you supposed to say at that point, you know? What are you supposed to say? Except, what is the value of a pre-fight medical screening? But that's the case in every fight, you know, and in, in Jersey, no less. Like, if he can pass one in Jersey, he could pass one in any state. It's not, it's not like they're commission shopping, right? So. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. All right. Mackenzie Dern's wrestling. Hi, Luke. I know one of your biggest criticisms of Mackenzie Dern's debut was her lack of wrestling. Which do you think is better, having Dern go train with the Arizona State wrestling team to bring high-level wrestling training partners for her or to go to a, go, for her to go to a wrestling club? She doesn't need to go to Arizona State to get good wrestling. That's just some kind of myth. I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it would hurt. Um, I don't even know if Arizona State has a women's portion of their team. It's not, it's not about that. I don't think she needs to go to, like, some incredible scholar of wrestling, right? She just needs to do a lot of it and against a good 
competent coach, right? That's what you, that's what she needs to do. And you can find, a, I am certain that there's in the state of Arizona, no problem finding a very good coach that could absolutely get her to the next level. And then the level beyond that, where she needs to be totally confident in that, you know? So again, I mean, going to Arizona state, if that was such a thing as she could do, eh, maybe, maybe it'd be phenomenal, but um, one need not go to these sorts of extremes to get where she really needs to be. Uh, Ed Ruth to 170. I like, what'd you make of Ed Ruth moving down to 170? How do you think he will do there? Who would you like to see him fight? Did y'all see him next to Habib in that picture? He did not look very big relative to Habib. Uh, he wasn't necessarily like the biggest uh, wrestler either at Penn State. He was just athletic, flexible, quick. Um, so here have been his fights, uh, most recent one in Bellator. Uh, let's see. At Bellator 186, he last fought, of course, at middleweight and knocked out Chris Dempsey in the second round. I don't know. Probably a good idea. Uh, welterweight is a more stacked division than middleweight, but um, there's some big targets there that could, if he wins, could really help him build his name. As I mentioned, standing next to Habib, who was a giant lightweight, or a pretty big lightweight anyway, he appeared to be uh, about the same size, if not significantly larger. And maybe he's getting older and just doesn't want to cut the right weight. Or the, not the right weight, but the uh, an over uh, a healthy prescription of weight cutting. So I'm, I'm, I'd be fine with it. I mean, yeah. Seems there's, there's nothing about it that seems overly controversial looking at it and potentially even really good for him. Again, provided he's making a healthy weight cut. In fact, what was... Forget now. I can't even keep this straight. What was his wrestling weight? Was it 174 in college? I'm trying to remember what that was exactly. He went to Blair Academy. Jesus. Uh, let's see. Ed Ruth. Just just for clarification's sake, let me see exactly what his weight was in college because I can no longer remember. Uh, weight 184. Wow. Let's see. Man. Yeah. So if he can do it safely, I'd be fine with it. All right. Let's go to the Twitter machine. Oh, there's one more. It's smaller. Aldo Stevens. That The big question there for me is uh, how Stevens and his footwork deal with Aldo's speed. And then the X factor on the other side is Has Aldo taken too much damage, getting finished two times in a row like that? Is he old, or is he just not good enough to beat Max Holloway? That's the big question there. That fight is fascinating. Fascinating on a number of levels. A big heavy hitter like Jeremy Stevens against a guy who's an inc uh, incredible athlete and quick and nimble uh, like Jose Aldo, but one who's a little bit longer in the tooth. And, and, and Jeremy Stevens, who has kind of been like sort of mixing it up and winning and losing, and now is on this surge. Phenomenal matchmaking. Phenomenal. Uh, all right, let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. You can shoot me uh, a tweet at LThomasNews, or you may go to, uh, yeah, you can do that and just use the hashtag ChatRappers. So it says, why does the ref get between fighters to let the grounded combatant stand up? I've never heard of a rule against hitting someone on the way up. I think to preserve a degree of fairness, right? Otherwise, what's the ref there for? Uh, your favorite Ninja Turtle character, Master Splinter. Come on, that's an easy one. 
Thoughts on Machida Belfour. Y'all know my opinion about these aging vets. They got to be fed to the wolves, man. I'm sure, it's a fine fight, but I would rather see Machida fight a young gun. I would rather see Belfour fight a young gun. I would love to see that turnover. I know some people think that's cruel and unusual, and I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that argument, but uh, yeah. Let's see. Um, some people like the designs. Mendez is back soon to featherweight. Ooh. Who would you like to see him face coming off of his loss to Frankie before the ridiculous ban for ice cream? I don't think it was, or for cream. I don't know if it was for cream. In fact, I'm pretty sure that there was a legitimate cause. And if you take what the issues of anti-doping to be as serious, um, but whatever. So a featherweight, ooh, a Darren Elkins, but they trained together. A Chan Sung Jung, we could do Ricardo Lamas again, although they already won. Josh Emmett, they trained together. You could do a Mirsad Bektic. You could do the winner of Calvin Cater and Hanato Moicano. Any of those would be great. Any of those would be phenomenal. Um, let's see. Let's see. Fantasy fight. Aldo versus Gaethje. Wow. That's a crazy one. Gaethje just being too big, I guess. Northcutt versus Platinum Perry. Platinum Perry would have his way with him. Barboza versus McGregor. I would say McGregor. Volkov versus Nganu. Ooh. I would say Nganu. And then Rumble versus Rockhold. Well, if it's a 205, definitely Rumble. Definitely Rumble. What would it take to get you to eat the Conor McGregor chicken sandwich on air and review it? What would it take? Um, it would take a sponsorship from Burger King. Because otherwise, I would never eat it. What do you think of Elias Theodoru being a ring card boy at Invicta 28? I mean, look, if it makes people happy, it makes people happy. I personally, I like Elias a lot. Um, he's a great presence on social media, and um, he's got a great attitude, you know, um, about winning and losing, about just do, being an irreverent, fun, happy guy. There's a fun, happy person. How mad can you be at a fun, happy person? Not very. Personally, I don't, I don't enjoy the gimmick, but I don't hate it so much that I'm going to lose my mind over it, too. You know what I mean? Like, in the end, it's like, well, I don't think it's very charming, but Elias seems like a wonderful person. It's not going to interrupt my week at all. Let's all just move along, sort of the way I would put it. Let's see. Um, People like the new biz venture. People asking about... Um, um, fair use compliance. Look, we believe we're in fair use compliance. If not, we'll just take everything down. We're not here to, we're not here to combat people about, over this kind of stuff. We're just trying to figure this out as we go. We did our due diligence. We believe, but if there's an issue, we'll just take it all down. Uh, maybe it's just me, but I don't think it's a good sign for Frank Shamrock's UFC hall of fame bid since they disregarded his fight with Tito again in their top 25 segment. Ooh, did they really? Huh? That's it. Y'all, y'all ever seen the? T if you've never seen it, you got to go see Tito versus Frank Shamrock. This is one of those pivotal moments. It's sort of like a more modern. This is not exactly right, but it's sort of like a more modern. It's a mix between MMA's Rope a Dope and 
Coleman versus Smith, some something like that, somewhere in that space, a little bit, uh, maybe closer to the former than the latter. But, um, but yeah, amazing. It was an amazing uh, uh, fight, and they didn't make it the top twenty-five. Who was the top twenty-five? Really? Who's the top twenty? That's insane. Can someone send me a link of the what they said was the top twenty? I, I would be shocked. If that's not top twenty-five, but maybe not. I don't know. I believe Robert Whitaker made the Commonwealth Games wrestling team for Australia. While the Australian wrestling pedigree is nothing compared to most wrestling nations, I feel the MMA media has overlooked this and not given him his props. Thoughts? So that's actually a great point. I will be honest with you. Um, I know a little bit about American wrestling, being that I'm American, and about collegiate wrestling. I've covered it a little bit. Uh, and about freestyle wrestling uh, as it pertains to the Olympics. And uh, Mike Reardon, of course, has been really instrumental in helping me understand everything that has happened. Um, I don't know much about the level of wrestling that one sees at a Commonwealth Games. I don't know exactly how hard it is to make a Commonwealth Games versus, let's say, a world team here in the United States or a national team. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't fully understand the context there. So I would actually lean on people like a Mike Reardon or Australian media who might have some knowledge about this, who could potentially share some of these insights. It's just a, it's a, you know, I try to answer as many questions as I can forthrightly, but if I really don't know the answer, I try, or I think I don't know the answer. I try to just say, I don't know. I don't know the answer here. It is an interesting point because it seems like an awfully interesting achievement. Is it an awfully interesting achievement that we fail to appreciate? Or is it that because it's an interesting achievement, but it's not all that prestigious, here's what it actually means? I don't know the answer. So I would actually really hope that someone in that part of the world could give us some guidance. So if you're watching this and you know really well, um, shoot me an email, lukethomasnews at gmail.com, and I'll share it next week because I could really use some help. Uh, thoughts on fighter cancellation pay when Bradley Scott only got a portion of it and zero Reebok pay when he fulfilled all commitments and it was not his fault, but Nasrat Hackprast got his full show money when he was the one pulled from the fight. Did he really? Well, I saw that he only got, I saw that uh, Bradley Scott only got um, a portion of it. I mean, look, man, I saw him out there crying on that thing and it was just heartbreaking to watch. You know, this guy served his country, was a Royal Marine. I can tell you here in the United States, Royal Marines have a very prestigious, uh, uh, not merely pedigree, but reputation. Like you talk about Royal Marines here among the American Marines and they stand at attention. They, they, we have a high degree of respect for what those guys are able to do. The, the two biggest Marine groups that the American Marines respect are the Royal Marines and the Rock Marines. The Rock Marines, those are the craziest bastards I've ever seen in my life. The uh, ones of the Republic of Korea. Oh my God. Those Bamas, they don't play around over in the, in the Rock Marines, but neither here nor there. The Royal Marines are some bad dudes, man. That is a very, 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 very prestigious thing to be. And, uh, you know, I, as a former member of the military, like, I have deep admiration for Bradley Scott and everybody who um, has done that kind of a thing. And to see him up there in this in just struggling, drowning, man, and just looking for a, a life preserver, someone to chuck him one from the boat, that's what it felt like. You're watching this guy in the in the, in the in the ocean, they wouldn't even chuck him a life preserver. They just kind of threw him a rope to hang on to, and then dragged him through the salt water of the of the freezing Bering Sea or something. It was, you know. But look, but this is my point. It's like, look, man, the media has shed light on this. The fans have turned on management. 
we can't make this union for them. You literally had PFL try and fail. And you had, we don't know what direction they were going to go, the double M, triple A. And that was sort of a hoax, but whatever. Try and fail. But now you've got Project Spearhead out there. And I don't know what the rest of the fighter rosters makes makes of, uh, what you call it, um, of, uh, of Leslie Smith or Cajun Johnson or Ally Aquinta. But it's like, what is it going to take for these guys to, number one, realize the cavalry ain't coming, man. The cavalry ain't coming. You are the cavalry. You guys want change. You got to do it. Media can't do it for you. Apparently, your managers can't do it for you because I would be. I've been saying, well, managers should do more about making sure that these kinds of deals and uh, assurances get put into their contracts. Here we are, low these many months and years later, and nothing has happened. So your managers aren't going to save you. Your agents aren't going to save you. Your sponsors aren't going to save you. Your spouse isn't going to save you. No one's going to save you. Nobody. Nobody is coming. Nobody. There are no reinforcements. Nothing. The only people that are going to fix this is them. It is it. It is it. And we are at a point now where we keep seeing this. And yes, it's bad PR for the UFC and everybody else. But it's not even just bad PR for the UFC. It's bad PR for MMA. You think there's young athletes out there who are like, yeah, maybe the you know MMA kind of interests me. And they could be something special one day. And they're like, but fuck that. I don't want to go do that. Or someone's weeping because as a veteran of their own country who served it honorably, they they can't get the money that would ordinarily be theirs if they had just basic guarantees. Who wants to enter that environment? They're doing harm to the sport, man. And no one can help them but themselves. The MMA media has done basically about as much as they possibly can. Jesus Christ, John Nash over Bloody Elbow this week did a, what was it, six, 9,000 page freaking article comparing the benefits of being an independent contractor but having the Ali Act extended to mixed martial arts versus the benefits of having a union but one where there wouldn't be the same uh, dynamics of free agency that you see in other uh, leagues where there are teams competing for the services of athletes. Right, he goes into this huge. I mean, what more do you, we have talked about on the MMA beat ad nauseum? I have talked about on this podcast ad nauseum. Everybody talks about on social media ad nauseum. Either these guys are going to s or get off the pot, or you know, it's just going to be what it's going to be. But I, I, I seem to think that they keep thinking that the cavalry is coming. It is not. It is not. You are alone in this, or you can work together. But that is it. Those are your two options. Suffer or work together because I can't make the union for them. And even if I could make a union, I still have to get them to sign all of the cards that Project Spearhead's trying to do. And then they'll put up a resistance to it. Probably. I don't know. But even then, it's not something I would do. But you get the idea. So, like, I, I, do, I have, do, I have, do I have literal, genuine, heartfelt sorrow for Bradley Scott and everybody who gets in these situations where they are either not getting what they're owed or not getting what they're owed to the point of financial destitution. If you're a human being, how could you not? How could you not? But at the same time, what is the freaking solution? Maybe it's the Ali Act, but I don't think so because that would still make everyone independent contractors. That would change the game a little bit, sure. Or maybe it's the union. But if it's the union, I'm not the cavalry. You guys aren't the cavalry. All those fighters is the cavalry. And I hope eventually that dawns on them before it's too late. And as I mentioned this before, 
are they just going to give away all that money? You know, with the TV deal that's coming up, they don't get a they don't get a union going. They're going to piss away how much? We're talking it could be at least half a billion dollars. Who cares if you don't get your Reebok money if you have guaranteed TV money coming down all the time? And they're just going to lose that because you want to have Twitter wars with each other? I mean, I get it, y'all. Those are important, too. They have a place. Everything's got a place, but maybe not as high up in the pecking order as it has been. Uh, let's see. Nganu versus... Oop, what the hell am I doing? Nganu versus Lewis. A, do you think it will happen? I'll say yes. B, how do you see it going? I see those two guys slugging it out. I'd see probably Francis overcoming him, though. But don't sleep on Texas's finest because Derek Lewis, there has been one trait about his career he, and his ability in fights is he perseveres, man. That guy, that is a perseverant person, man. Where does that put the winner in the heavyweight division? Ooh. Um, for Nganu, it might just launch him back up to the top, although I realize he's already there now, but you know what I mean? Uh, for Lewis, man, that puts him in close contention. Maybe he'd get the winner of Blades and um, Overeem, right? Or, uh, yeah, because if Blades won, that'd be a fresh matchup. Or he just might get a title shot again. Well, he wouldn't get it back-to-back. -back. Probably have to get another, probably have to get a couple of wins. But we'll see. We'll see. Oh, here are the top 25 fights. Oh, I can't read them all. The print is too small. But number one, Diaz McGregor, two. Really? Two, Diaz McGregor, one. Three, Henderson Shogun. Four, Lawler McDonald. Five, Edgar Maynard, two. Uh, three of the four, I don't have a problem with. Uh, anything else? Anything else? Scale of one to ten, how excited are you for the Infinity War movie? Ooh. Uh... I'd say a solid nine, man. I mean, for a comic book movie, I would say a solid nine. There's some video with some nerd on YouTube. It was just him. Re his whole channel is just him reacting to things. And he's like, obviously a comic book nerd. He's got like all these like dolls in the back and he's wearing a Spider-Man shirt. And his video has like 900,000 views and it's just him marking out on it. I'm not quite like that. I'm guessing that's maybe, maybe, maybe like an eight. I'm guessing that's closer to a nine or 10, but a pretty, pretty solid eight. Uh, okay, guys, I got to get out of here. Thank you so much for watching. Wish me luck. I have to now go trudge through the snow. Maybe I'll die. Maybe I won't. Who knows? That's a terrible way to end the show, isn't it? Well, whatever. All right. I have to get out of here. Thank you guys so much for watching. Please subscribe to uh, the channel below. Like the video, of course. And uh, yeah, I got to get out of here. But thank you so much for watching. And until next time, donkeys, stay frosty. <laughs>